Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I'm going to start by asking you some questions. I'm the youngest of three older siblings. Stick up your hand if you are the youngest in your family. Oh, there's quite a few. Do we have any oldest? Oh, it's like half and half. Any middle children? Controversial. Nice, nice, nice. And are any of you only childs? Oh, there's a couple. Not bad. Well, don't worry, this preach is still for you. So... Tonight we're going to be looking at the relationships Joseph had with his siblings, but also understand how deep his father's love was for Joseph, the forgiveness towards his siblings, and how we can see the picture of God, the father's love for us and for Jesus. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 26. If you've got your Bibles, please turn there. It should be on the screen as well. Oh, it is. Great. Uh, So Genesis chapter 50 verses 15 to 26, and it starts with God's good purposes. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Then it continues the death of Joseph. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machiah, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. It's like they want us to know how old he was. (laughs) They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So after Jacob is buried, that's Joseph's dad, right? Suspicions start to surface quickly among Joseph's brothers. But I find the language of verse 15 quite interesting. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. This doesn't necessarily mean that they just learned about their father's death, since they did travel to Canaan previously to take part in burying him there in verses 8 and 12 to 13, which is obviously before this. I think verse 15 describes how the brothers suddenly realised the full implications of their father's death And it started to set in on them. Specifically, they are concerned that Joseph hated them and was going to kill them. But I'll explain why in a bit. 
Don't worry, there will be drama. <laughs> How many of you have older family members, maybe grandparents, who talk about other relations in your family that they knew of before your time? Bit of a tongue twister. But for me, it was a theatrical great-granny and a Scottish footballer great-uncle. Maybe for you, you had extended family members that you've never met before, but you feel like you know them based on what other family members talk about. Either way, we know these stories because they occasionally get passed down the generations in conversations at the dinner table. Joseph and his brother's dad, Jacob, he also had a brother called Esau, Uncle Esau, who was described as being quite hairy. <laughs> Jacob and Esau, I don't think, got along very well. And Esau was kind of favoured over Jacob by their dad. So Jacob, get this, right? Jacob manipulated their dad into giving him Esau's blessing by covering himself in hairy lamb skin, as you do, so that when his blind father went to touch him, his smooth skin did not give him away as an imposter of Esau, his hairy brother. And in Genesis 27, verse 41, it says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. He's talking about Joseph's dad here. Uncle Esau wanted to kill Joseph's dad. To be fair though, Jacob was quite sneaky, <laughs> stealing his brother's blessing and all. But then their dad was weird, in my opinion, for having a favourite child. <laughs> so knowing this, do you reckon that Joseph's brothers knew about this rift between their dad and their uncle Esau? I'm pretty sure that they did. I'm sure the brothers were concerned that Joseph will also hate them, just as Uncle Esau hated their dad for stealing the blessing, which led him to want to kill his brother Jacob. Joseph had a lot more power than his uncle did, though. So his brothers must have been quite terrified. With good reason, the brothers are reminded about all the terrible things that they had done to Joseph previously. They tried to murder him. And then they didn't go through with it, so then they sold him into slavery instead, telling the dad that he was killed. But their concern is whether up to that point, their father's life had prevented Joseph from taking the full revenge that they deserved. So, to protect themselves, in verses 16 and 17, I personally believe that they sent this message to Joseph, not the dad, telling him that their dad, Jacob, had told them that Joseph should forgive them after he dies. Honestly, I know that we've got a few storytellers and scriptwriters in this room, so can you please turn this into a TV series? <laughs> because there is so much drama, and I definitely want to unpick it. But I don't personally think that their dad wrote this letter. I could be wrong, but the letter just comes across quite aggressive to me. Maybe that's one of the reasons why Joseph wept afterwards. But if the message is sent from the side of Joseph's brothers... They write in an over-familiar sort of way. Partly maybe because of the way Joseph responded back to them and saying words like little ones instead of saying children or something a bit more formal. Remember, Joseph, he has a huge amount of sovereignty over Egypt, a bit like a prime minister. So perhaps we don't even know the severity of how one would talk to someone in a sovereign position like his. But the brothers call Jacob your father, not their father, which is weird. 
Imagine your brother's doing that. Then they say please numerous times, and then they go on to describe four major terms for sin. They use big words like transgression twice, sin, evil. Basically, their words dramatically emphasize the evil of their actions against Joseph. Finally, though, even the way that they send a message rather than speaking to him directly, they avoid confrontation, and it's kind of weak. However, there's nothing to say that their dad, Jacob, didn't, have, uh, didn't say all this in a private conversation with Joseph's brothers. The letter just comes across quite strongly, maybe suggesting that they're making it up to protect themselves. But Joseph wept after this. His response to receiving this letter is amazing. Firstly, his weeping could summarise the sorrow over everything that has broken down in his relationships with his older brothers. As the youngest sibling, I can personally understand this. You just want to be on the same level. You just want to be accepted. You don't necessarily need all the special treatment that comes with being the youngest sibling. And just like Tom said last week, Joseph was his father's golden boy and he wasn't embarrassed by how his dad treated him. And yeah, maybe there's a hint of cockiness there, but I'm sure Joseph had certain pressures to live up to high expectations as well. Maybe Joseph felt dishonoured by thinking that they needed to manipulate him into forgiving them after their dad dies. To know that his brothers still fear him or have no trust in him after all they've been through together. His sorrow may not be all from hearts associated with his brothers. But I reckon he's got compassion towards his brothers. Mainly, probably, for their troubled minds. They were so tormented. They wrestled with their fears of what could happen to them. But in this part, we see Joseph already having forgiveness in his heart for them. I think he forgave them a long time ago, but his brothers were still believing the lies and, you know, of guilt and shame, and they carried that, and they needed freedom from it. But Joseph assures his brothers in verse 19. He assures them with a rhetorical question. He says, am I in the place of God? I think this rhetorical question is proudly significant here. I actually think that it's concluding that the devil is actually losing. A direct rejection to the serpent in Genesis 3 of the promise that the serpent made to Adam and Eve at the beginning of Genesis. The serpent said, you will be like God. Victor Hamilton says, Genesis begins by telling us about a primeval couple who tried to become like God and ends by telling us about a man who denied he was in God's place. Adam and Eve attempted to wipe out the dividing line between humanity and deity. Am I saying that right? Deity. (laughs) Joseph refuses to try to cross that line. Joseph will only be God's instrument, never his substitute. Joseph's response continues to observe that while his brothers meant evil against him, God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
Once again, this reverses what the serpent says to Eve in Genesis 3, his deceitful promises that you will not surely die. Listen to this though, right? Both God and the devil promise life. Adam and Eve trusted what the serpent said in spite of the overwhelming goodness of God towards them, while Joseph trusted the word of God in spite of the overwhelming evil he had to face during his lifetime. Joseph rejects any claim to be like God. He acknowledges God to be working out the good, even though there is evil all around us. Everything God created in the beginning, he saw as what? Good. (laughs) And God is sovereign over it. Joseph knows this because he knows the love of God. Joseph's response doesn't represent the final answer to the problem of the evil that came into the world, but he establishes what we intend for evil, God intends for good. Joseph reassures his brothers twice not to fear, promising them that they will be provided for. I'd love to challenge us to think like Joseph. And I'm certainly talking to myself as well. But who do we need to forgive today? What's the first name that pops into your head? It could even be yourself, your own name. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm trying to patronise you, but we know that unforgiveness causes problems. God knows this. He forgave us. Jesus died so holy, so perfect, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can live. And there are so many great examples of forgiveness in the Bible so that we can truly get it. But it can be so difficult to forgive others sometimes. Once we begin to justify our suffering, We start to create boundaries and wrap ourselves in pain, just like a mummy. But to forgive quickly allows peace to produce healthy boundaries or successful relationships. Once bitterness sets in, it only grows and gets harder to find love, peace, joy. Here's some examples, right, of uh, people in the Bible who were truly hurt. Uh, Uncle Esau, do you remember him, the hairy one? He eventually forgave Jacob's dad, so not that much drama there. Joseph forgave his brothers for attempting to murder him and sell him into slavery, so quite a lot of drama there. Peter denies Jesus three times, yet Jesus forgives him and reinstates him into ministry. Madness. After murdering Christians and persecuting him, uh, them, rather, not just one, Paul had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and it changed his life. There are also a few parables or stories that Jesus shares about the importance of forgiveness. But I wonder why this is so important. Dr. Stephen Standiford, who's a big head person at a cancer treatment centre, and he loves a bow tie, um, He says unforgiveness is classified as a medical disease. It produces excess adrenaline, a bit like me right now, and cortisol, 
which deplete the production of natural killer cells, which is your body's foot soldier in the fight against illness. It's definitely worth looking this stuff up yourself. I found a lot more research and started going down loads of rabbit holes about how it can affect the blood flow to your heart, causing all sorts of problems. But essentially, unforgiveness can literally make us weak, physically. But there's never been a better time than now to lay down your suffering. I know how hard it is to forgive. I've seen personally what unforgiveness can do, though. And yeah, you might think, that's all right for you, mate. No, it's not all right. If you want to know more about my personal story, I'm so happy to to share that with anybody, but it's a daily battle for me. I still struggle with it. But things that help me is talking to someone, having accountability with a mate who listens but expects to be challenged by them as well. Because it's not really fair to share your unforgiveness and expect them to also partner with it. Allow others to help you find where Jesus is. I love praying with a mate or closing your own door, closing your eyes and allowing God to move in your heart. That truly helps. We don't even really have to do that much. We can have this hope and freedom that Jesus gave to us. God does it. He's strong for us. He's good and he's sovereign over it. Just like those people in the Bible that I read out earlier, they all have different levels and different stories of what we deem unforgivable. But that's why it's so good to read these stories. It's so encouraging. I want a heart that is loving, caring, kind, just like my Father God. I know whenever I have unforgiveness and I hold on to it, my heart becomes bitter and it becomes cold. It becomes selfish. When I'm hurt, I know I can tend to hurt others because I want them to experience the pain that I feel. But again, talking, praying, closing your door, Sit in silence if you have to. Knowing God isn't that hard. Allow him to bring peace into your heart. Now, at the end of this passage, right, we read that Joseph was embalmed after he died. To me, that sounded like he was covered in Vaseline, but apparently he was turned into a mummy. Which I actually didn't know anything about this um, until I did some research. And uh, we all know basically what a mummy looks like, right? Yeah. Um, But the Egyptians, which was partly the culture that Joseph was living in, and where his dad died as well, actually. uh, The Egyptians were fascinated with death and the possibilities of life after death. Does everyone actually want to know how you become a mummy, though? (laughs) Um, so to become a mummy they would have removed the internal organs gross Uh, next slide Uh, (laughs) they would have stored the organs in jars and the uh, the body cavity was packed with a salt to dry out the body 
Joseph's skin would have been treated with resin and spices, and then the body was wrapped in linen strips, placed in a wooden coffin. But obviously in films and TV, we only see like the linen strips one. <laughs> Not the fact that they're empty inside and they have internal organs that are in jars. <laughs> but some mummified bodies could be relatively well kept, um, as obviously if you go to any Egyptian section in a museum, you can see that today. Somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but it should also be noted that the Jews did not embalm. Um, and Joseph and Jacob, Joseph's dad, were, were actually the only uh, lineage from Abraham that were mummified, which I just thought was interesting. Um, so, but when the women, the women that were bringing the spices when Jesus died, like when they brought the spices to the tomb on resurrection morning... It was to give a like, pleasant smell, obviously, because bodies smell a lot. I, I, yeah, I've never smelled it, but they smell a lot <laughs> after they, they, they die. But obviously, Jesus rose again, so that didn't happen. But once, uh, once all the flesh decays, then the bones of the wealthy deceased would have been collected into special boxes. But um, Joseph gets to see three generations, right? He gets to see three generations come up after him, and treasures Manasseh's children as his own. And when Joseph is about to die, he tells his brothers that God will surely visit them, which could suggest that God would bless them and their futures as well. Because how many of you have been blessed when God visits you, when the Holy Spirit comes? But endings can be difficult. The word Genesis means, of course, the origin or the beginning of something. The Hebrew title for this book is even more fitting. It is uh, Bereshit. I had to look that up as well. And, uh, which is translated to in the beginning. The entire book of Genesis is about the beginning of something. It's not just the genesis of the universe that qualifies this book as a book of beginnings, but the genesis of salvation too. I really love understanding the Bible when you find out what things mean culturally or you know, in the culture that it was in. And Joseph lives a long time. They mentioned twice that he was 110 years old when he died. And just like we have special numbers in our society, like the number seven, or even um, some demons being unlucky, like the number 13, I found out that culturally the Egyptians also had special numbers. And 111 was significant in their culture as a special number because they would have accounted for Joseph being in the womb as well. And 111 is known in Egyptian symbolism as the start of, of a new beginning. It's not hugely important to us to know that, but I just thought it was interesting because tonight we come to the end of Genesis. This book that starts with a life ends with a death. The very last phrase of this book is a coffin in Egypt. At the time of Joseph's death, I don't think it was known that the Israelites were actually prisoners in Egypt yet. I could be wrong. Sorry, Tom. But we know it's going to happen soon, right? And it tells us in Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Joseph always remembered that God had promised a land specifically to his great-grandfather that would be passed down to his descendants. So Joseph reminds his family that God will fulfill all his promises and when he does 
Joseph demands that his descendants bring his bones up to that promised land. But there is a wonderful hope expressed by Joseph in these verses. No matter what trials or blessings that he had in his life, he knows that something greater is yet to come. And even as he lies dying, Joseph remembers the precious promise of his Lord to bring his people into this promised land. Uh, Reverend Ryan Verghese says, What are you hoping for? Maybe you hope to gain financial security or you hope to start a family with your spouse. There are many things in life we hope for, but when we live in a world that is marred by sin, our unfulfilled hopes can bring about suffering. Christian hope looks beyond suffering in this world to a time where we will suffer no more. As believers in Jesus, we too have a great promise before us. God promises that we will spend time in eternity in a new earth free from the evils of sin, new resurrection bodies free from fleshly temptation, free from the shame of our pasts, to worship without limits, to know God more deeply. Heaven is a wonderful promise. And we have the Holy Spirit to remind us. No matter what trials come or blessings we have, just like Joseph, we can keep our eyes on God's promise yet to come. Because God is sovereign. He's over everything. He's beyond any of our understanding. And yet we have limits, but we have been given this freedom. Thanks to God's Son, Jesus, we can walk into the promises of God. He's given it all to us. Because he's loving. He's kind, generous, perfect. He's a father who wants the best for his children. Do you have this hope for this promise? Are you able to see God so good, just like Joseph did? God sees your heart. I've personally learned that when I'm suffering, he sits beside me in my pain. Giving your heart to God includes your hearts, your fears, and your unforgiveness. God is sovereign over all things, and we, as humans, are sovereign under God's power. If those things are not in harmony with each other, there could well be difficulties. Joseph had a level of sovereignty, but he dies in faith of God's promise and with peace. 